0: good morning everyone it's great to have you all here with us today Uh, as we continue our uh, sermon series through the book of revelation we come today to revelation chapter 15 we're going to be looking at revelation chapter 15 revelation chapters 15 and 16 today so if you want to go ahead and turn with me in your copy of god's word uh, to revelation chapter 15 revelation chapter 15 i Open us up today by reading chapter 15, verses 3 through 4 as we get started. What, what I'm going to call kind of the, um, the driving verse of our sermon today. The driving verse of, of what we're going to be looking at today in Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. It says this. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God Holy God, we come to you today asking for your help as we read in in the book of Revelation and study and as I teach from from these chapters in Revelation. I pray today, Lord, that we would see your holiness revealed even in your wrath. God, I pray today that you would guide the words I say and that ultimately, Lord, your church would be grown, your church would be edified, and Jesus Christ would be glorified today. We ask this in his precious and holy name. Amen. So as we've been making our way through the book of Revelation thus far, I've said this before uh, in previous sermons I've preached this series, but it's, it's so easy for us to get bogged down in this book, right? It's so easy for us to, in the book of Revelation, take in all these details, get so confused by all the imagery and, and the different things that we see through the book and, and to get so just like distracted by whose interpretation is, is what, whether or not this supports this interpretation or that interpretation of the end times and all of these things. It's just so easy for us to get bogged down in, in the details, the imagery of this book that are presented. And, and we have seen really quite a few depictions of, of God's wrath, God's Judgment throughout this book so far. And, and the details are important. I don't want to stand up here today and try and act like, you know, that the details of this book are unimportant. That's, that's not the case. They're important. They are inspired uh, in Scripture. They are here for a reason. They're important. However, I want us to, to refocus our attention today on exactly what it is, exactly what the reason is for the pouring out of all this wrath. That we see in the book of Revelation and in our text today. I want us to see exactly what it is that's, that's causing all of this wrath to be poured out. You see that it's not coming from a, from a void. It's not coming out of nowhere. The wrath that is being poured out upon the earth, upon the enemies of God, is not coming from nowhere. In fact, it is coming from a purposeful God where this wrath is coming from. And the reason that we are seeing this wrath poured out upon the earth, I would argue today, is because God is holy. God is holy. That's why I've titled the sermon today, uh, as you heard in the text that we've already read, For You Alone Are Holy. That's what we're going to be mainly focusing on today. I want us to especially zero in on the holiness of God. And even as I stand up here before you, and I, I, like, am prepared to, to preach on God's holiness, on on God as holy, like it's really intimidating for me. It's it's not a topic that I am just super comfortable comfortable preaching on. Not because, not because I don't think God is holy. Not because uh, I disagree with this doctrine or or think that it's not true, but rather because the holiness of God is. So massive, so hard to understand, it's so uh, really impossible for us to wrap our minds around the holiness of God. In fact, the, the, the holiness of God has been prepared, uh, compared to a, a diamond. When you see a diamond, it's beautiful and, and magnificent, and it's got all the different ridges and cuts. And, and three different people can be looking at a diamond held up into the light from, from different angles, And they can all just see different aspects of its beauty and and just the way you even turn it in the light. You see see it from a different angle that you had never seen it before. And it's just this consuming and and overarching. Uh, And that's the way the holiness of God is, is that you could look at the holiness of God for years and years and years and study and study and study. And never truly understand this idea of God being holy. That's not an excuse for us not to look at it, though. It's important that we do seek to understand what it means that we serve a holy God as we study the, the holiness of God. Now, the word holy, if you're unfamiliar with the word holy, uh, to, to offer kind of the most simple definition that, that we can for the word holy would be set apart or separate or, or an even simple definition definition might be to cut, to To separate. That is, when we say that God is holy, we are saying that He is separate from us. That He is set apart from us. That He is unlike us as human beings. Unlike anything in this world, our God is separate from it. He is different from it. He is distinct. He is unique. He is set apart. A quote by Sinclair Ferguson I think is helpful. He says, quote, God's holiness is His Godness. It is His being God and all that it means for Him to be God. To meet God in His holiness, therefore, is altogether overwhelmed. It's to be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that He is God and not man. And this points us to an important distinction that I think needs to be made when we think about the holiness of God. Because oftentimes we equate the holiness of God with the righteousness of God, with his being without sin. We, when we, we hear the term holy, what might first come to our mind would be to be without sin, sinless. And that's, that is necessarily a part of what it means that God is holy, but, but really that speaks to the righteousness of God, the, the upstanding Morality, the upstanding level of morale of our God. But holiness is far more than just the fact that God is sinless. It is the fact that God is altogether apart from us and different from us, separate from us, unique from people and things here on earth. So that necessarily means that He is without sin because He is separate from sin. Sin is of this world, not of God. But it also means that everything else that we know here on this earth, God is is so unlike that. Even the things that we use to to understand who God is, when we talk about God's love, when we talk about God's mercy, and and we equate it to, to things that we know here on earth, we know love here on earth. But God's love is holy and is therefore unlike a love here on earth that is so far above, so far separated from the kind of love that we know here on earth. God's mercy, we, we recognize the idea of mercy, and we can describe it in human terms, but God's mercy is holy in that it is so far above, so different from our understanding of mercy. So while holiness does necessarily entail righteousness, it is so much more than that. The idea of holiness is the idea that God is so different from everything that we know, from every other God that we have ever Uh, heard of or man has ever thought of, there is in fact none like our God. This is why when God introduces himself to Moses, when he sends Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh, he says, Moses asks, who should I say it is that sends me? And what does God say? He doesn't say, I am like this other God. I'm like Baal, but different and, and, and better. No, God doesn't do that. What does he say? He says, I am who I am. Yahweh. Because you see there is no comparison point for God. There is nothing and no one for God to compare himself to. In order to tell Moses who he is. He cannot say I am like this or I am like that. Because he is entirely unique. Entirely unlike anything else known in this world. Unlike anything anyone else known in this world. He is holy. Which is why he says I am who I am speaking to the holiness of God. I think uh, Sam Storm says it uh, beautifully when he says it like this, the holiness of God only secondarily refers to his moral purity, his righteousness of character. It primarily points to his infinite otherness. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendently separate. Holiness is not one attribute among many. It is not like grace or power or knowledge or wrath. Everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes of divine holiness. In In other words, all of the attributes that we know of God, everything that we know about who he is and his nature flows out of his holiness. Every single thing. God's grace is so much different from ours because he is holy. God's love is so much greater than ours because he is holy. He is of a different kind. Everything about God that we know flows out of his holiness. And this includes God's wrath. Which brings me to the main idea for our sermon today. The main idea for today, if you remember nothing else, remember this. That in order to have a proper understanding of the wrath of God, we must see it in connection to the holiness of God. In order to have a proper understanding of the wrath of God, we must see it in connection with the holiness of God. The reason I want us to focus in on the the holiness of God so heavily today is because this is the way these two chapters are structured in Revelation, chapters 15 and 16. John, instructed by the Holy Spirit, builds these chapters, structures these chapters in such a way that that he sees God's wrath pouring forth from God's holiness. The wrath that we see coming forth in chapter 16 in the form of the seven bowls comes forth from the throne room of a holy God that we see in chapter 15. In fact, it comes forth precisely because God is a holy God. The reason that we face God's wrath is because he is holy. So in chapter 15, we see John setting the stage for the coming wrath of God, which is point number one, that John is setting the stage for the wrath of God. We see in chapter 15, and, and there's just so much text here. I would love for us to just, just read every word, but for the sake of time, uh, I'm just going to kind of briefly give us uh, an overview of chapter 15. In chapter 15, we see uh, the the stage being set for what is coming in chapter 16, for the wrath of God. What we see in verse uh, 1 to be the, the final wrath of God being poured out on the earth. We see the seven angels that are prepared with with the seven plagues representing the, the wrath of God to be poured out on humanity. We see the people of God worshiping him in his holiness, worshiping God who is holy and righteous and altogether good. And then finally we see the preparation for the final outpouring of God's wrath as we are taken into uh, the, the sanctuary of the tabernacle of God, the, the sanctuary of where we see God's holiness as His wrath is being prepared for the earth. First subpoint under under the point number one is that proper worship of God reflects His holiness. We see this in the text that I started us out by reading. Let me read it for us one more time. Where the people of God sing, "Great and amazing are Your deeds, O Lord, the Almighty. Just and true are Your ways." O king of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Notice how in this section we see that the holiness of God is the reason, is the motivation for everything that comes before that in this song that the people of God sing. It's the motivation for everything that comes. This this is uh, reminiscent, I think, of the song uh, that we hear in, in the beginning of Revelation of the four creatures in the throne room of God who have the six wings and they sing constantly, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's what these angels sing. That's the the, the theme of the song that the The people of God sing in the throne room. It's amazing to me that that seems to be what the angels of God are so just enamored with. So why they see him as worthy of worship, worthy of praise is his holiness. This for them is his defining attribute of why he is worthy of worship because he is holy. He is perfectly holy. Holy, holy, holy is what the angels sing of God. It's amazing to me that we think about these, these angels. The angels that are described and all throughout Scripture, really, but especially these in the throne room of God, are intense creatures. They are described in such powerful, dramatic language. I mean, to, to think of one and, and the power they have and, and even just the fear that they would evoke at, at the sight of them, even these angels do not pale in comparison to the holiness of God. They do not pale in comparison because they are not like God. They are not like God. They are not holy like our God is holy. Therefore, they worship God and sing of His holiness. They glory in it. They worship Him in it just like the people of God do. In fact, we could break down these lines. Uh, when, when you see the, the word for you alone, O Holy Lord, that word for there is indicating to us that the reason for everything that has come before, the rationale, the ground... What has been said previously is grounded in the fact that He is holy. So we could say, Great and amazing are your deeds, for you alone are holy. Just and true are your ways, for you alone are holy. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy? The reason for fearing the Lord, the reason that His deeds are amazing. The reason that his ways are just and true is because he is holy. The holiness of God should consume our worship. If we worship God truly, if we worship God rightly, we should worship him in his holiness. Worship him because he is holy. The next subpoint under our uh, main point number one is that the sanctuary and the smoke are illustrations of God's holiness let's jump down to verses 8 5 through eight in chapter 15 where we see and, and we look into the sanctuary of the ten of witnesses verses 5 through eight after this I looked and the sanctuary of the ten of witnesses in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. We see here this idea of this holy place where no one was allowed to enter until the wrath of God was complete, until his wrath was appeased. We see this place filled with smoke. Again, a reminder of holiness of the presence of God and therefore the holiness of this place as we see in our text and This is just one of of multiple times when we recognize that there are places even places here on earth that have been made Holy that there are particular places that are are holy as we see in Scripture Think of Moses and the burning bush when he encounters the Lord in in the burning bush. What does God command him to do? He commands him, take off your shoes for the place where you stand is holy ground. We see the same thing when Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army. He meets Jesus Christ. And what is he commanded to do? Take off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Each of these places are holy ground. There are places that are holy. Why? Certainly not because Moses was there, not because Joshua was there. Not because of anything particular to that place, other than that is where God's presence was. That is where God met his people. The mere presence of God is enough to make a place holy. And this this whole idea informs the entire structure of the camp of the Israelites in the Old Testament. The camp of the Israelites was structured in such a way that at the center of the camp was what? What? The presence of God, right? The tabernacle, where the presence of God dwelt. And the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the center of the tabernacle, where the very presence of God was. Outside the center of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, you had the holy place. And then beyond that, you had the outer court. And then beyond that, you had the camp of the Israelites. Each representing different levels of holiness. The closer you are to the very presence of God, the more cleanliness was required, the more purification was requ- required. All of this res, uh, recognizing, symbolizing the very holiness of God and that he is separate from us. He is unique from us. He is distinct from us. And we see this even in the severity with which they, were, they in, intended to keep this place holy and that God commanded that only certain people were able to enter the holy place. Only certain people were were able to enter the holy of holies. We know that the the Levitical priesthood, the the line of Aaron, were the only ones that were even considered to be allowed to enter into the holy place. And beyond that, only certain ones were allowed to enter the holy of holies. In fact, the requirements were so strict that we see in Leviticus chapter 21 that even certain men, not because of their character or because of their name or or anything they had done, but simply because if they had any sort of deformities, they were unable to enter the Holy of Holies. Leviticus chapter 21, verses 21 through 22, or 23 says this, No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat of the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane the sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. You see the the call that the Lord puts upon this idea of, of purity, recognizing his holiness. All of this is intended to point to his holiness. When we read this, we would say that this is inhumane. This is unfair. This is unjust to, to not allow this, Man to enter because of something he can't control. But there's this an important image that we are intended to see here. And that that is God is entirely holy. And cannot be re- corrupted by that which is unclean. All of this is intended to direct our attention. To focus us in and to cause us to see the holiness of God. And honestly to cause us to fear because of it. One preacher I heard uh, expounding on this this idea of the priest going into the Holy of Holies begged the question, do you think the priests would ever even to dare look at the flame above the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God? They were never forbidden to do so. They were not forbidden to look upon the flame explicitly in Scripture. But would you have? Knowing the fear that Moses had of looking upon the glory of God, knowing that when God showed him just the, the back of his glory, his face, shone and he had to put on a veil? Knowing that seeing the full glory of God would kill you? It's doubtful to me that they would have even risked it out of fear of the holiness of God. This is the fact of the matter, that we are looking here at a picture of a holy God who is right in displaying and pouring out his wrath upon the earth which leads us to main point number two god's wrath rightly displayed in chapter 16. in this chapter we see what the previous chapter was leading us up to what the previous chapter was setting the stage for here we have the seven bowls of god's wrath poured out upon the earth by the angels prepared to do so we see these seven terrible plagues poured out upon the earth we see first sores Terrible swords that come upon those who took the mark of the beast. We see the sea, all of the salt water around the earth being turned entirely to blood and therefore killing all the creatures in them. All of them, every single creature in the sea, dead. It's all blood. After that, the rivers and springs, now the fresh water becoming blood. The water that we need to drink to survive has now been turned to blood. Scorching heat in the fourth plague. We see in the fifth plague Satan's kingdom plunged into darkness. The sixth plague prepares for, for the worldly leaders for what will be their final battle. Battle, which is amazing to me. We see in, in chapter sixteen uh, these these kings preparing for battle. Who are they going to battle against? They're going to battle against the holy God. Such an exercise in futility, right? This. It almost kind of made me chuckle when I think about these people coming to prepare battle for a holy God. First of all, at their, their deception, how deceived they are by their own sinfulness, by their own wickedness, their def- depravity. But, but it, it, made me, it makes me think about uh, my twin brother, who if you've ever met my twin brother, he's like way bigger than me. Uh, but growing up, that never stopped me from trying to like pick a fight with him, and I would always regret it. Because he would just like, kick my butt every time I'd like, run at him and he would just like, put his arm out and I would fall down. But, but that's what this makes me think of when I think about these, these men, who were pre- these kings who, who were preparing their armies to go to battle against the holy God of the universe. And then finally we see the seventh plague representing the completion of God's wrath marked by a great earthquake. None like, like none the earth has ever seen before. And this chapter is where all the discussion of God's holiness comes into play. It's where we see the importance of the holiness of God. Because God is holy, he cannot be in the presence of anyone or anything that is not holy. This is why the example of the tabernacle is so important for us to see, so important for us to recognize. The importance of remaining clean, pure, consecrated was essential for the priest If he was to enter the most holy place. If he had not maintained the regulations of purity, of cleanliness, of purification. And he entered the holy place, what would happen to him? He would die. It was the end of his life. Because he had not kept himself consecrated, pure. And this sounds like really bad news for us, right? When we think that only holy things can be In the presence of of a holy God. And just like the Levitical priests, the options are either purification or death by the wrath of God. Those are the only two options. So it it honestly sounds like, like kind of bad news. But as we'll see as we keep moving along, there is in fact good news even in the midst of this bad news. Verse 6 helps make it clear, as I stated before, that, that God's wrath is not coming from a void. It's not coming from intention, unintentionality. It's not coming from silliness or from a, a, a God that is like an angry child. But rather, what we see is that God's wrath does not fall on any innocent party. That all who reject God deserve his rebellion. And the sub-point is that the acts of a sovereign lord are what we see in chapter 16. The God's wrath, the wrath that we see poured out are the acts of a sovereign lord. Look at chapter 16 verse 8. This this redirects us again to the sovereignty of God even in wrath. It says the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. Verse 9 says they were scorched by the by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. God has the power over these plagues. Not only does God have the power to stop them, but He is the one sending these plagues upon upon these people, upon sinful human beings who have rebelled against Him and rejected Him. God is sovereign over all of this. Our God is purposeful in all His ways. He is not... Reckless in anything that he does, whether in his love or in his wrath, our God is sovereign and intentional in everything that he does. And none of the people who face God's wrath do so innocently. None of them do so and did not deserve his wrath. In fact, every single human being that has ever lived on the face of the earth deserves God's wrath. And his sovereignty will see to it. That each person who does not repent receives his wrath. The next sub-point I want to point out for us is that retribution comes even for the Lord's most powerful enemies. This right here is a word of encouragement to us in chapter 16, verse 10. This, to me, I love this. I think this is so encouraging. As we see the fifth angel pouring out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. This is amazing to me. There is not much more of a powerful enemy that we see than the beast in Revelation. Not much more powerful enemy that might cause us to tremble or worry or be afraid. And just like that, when the bowl is poured out, his kingdom is plunged into darkness. Just like that. This is reason for us to be encouraged. This great, powerful beast, for all of his mind, for all of his strength, has his kingdom sent immediately into darkness in an instant. And this one who has caused us so many problems has just been knocked on his butt like a bully who encounters his victim's older brother who happens to play football for his high school. Right? That's a great moment. That's a great mom. I can't imagine like a, like hardly a better scene in, in movies or TV uh, or, frankly, YouTube when you see somebody getting picked on, and then out of the blue, here comes older brother or best friend or dad or whatever to come in and intercede on behalf of this young man. However big the bully is, however big the bully that faces God's people is, he is knocked on his butt immediately when he comes into contact with our God. And the wrath of God, just like that, knocks him down. I love this. I love this, but it gets even better. The next subpoint C is that it is done. This is what we see, this phrase in chapter 16, verse 17. As we see the seventh bowl, the final pouring out of God's wrath, we see this, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. The completeness, the fullness of God's wrath has now been poured out. It is over. The fight has been won. God's people have been avenged. The wrath of God has been completed. And we would be remiss if we missed the connection that I think John would have us to see here with Jesus Christ on the cross. This is very, a very, very similar declaration to what we see Jesus Christ saying on the cross when he says to tell us, it is finished. It is finished. You see what happened on the cross when Jesus said this phrase, what was really taking place? The wrath of God was poured out upon Christ. In both of these passages in Scripture, the wrath of God is being poured out. One upon Christ and one upon the world who failed to repent. And the beast. The same thing is happening in both of this. This was the cup that Jesus drank, that he spoke to his disciples about. The cup of God's wrath. Look at what we see in verse 19. We see this. This is the cup of God's wrath. At the end of verse 19, he's. All right, we'll just read 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. The cup was drained. All of God's wrath has been poured out. And the fact of the matter is, That it was either poured out upon Christ or it was poured out upon sinful humanity. So who was it poured out upon Christ for? Why did Christ face God's wrath? Why did he take it upon himself? It was not for his own sin. We see repeated over and over again in chapter 16 that even in the midst of this wrath, they did not repent. They did not repent. It was not because Jesus did not repent for he did not need to repent of anything he was perfect he was righteous he was indeed holy for he was God so why on earth did Jesus face God's wrath drink the cup of God's wrath all the way it was for those who would repent and trust in him for the elect for the people of God in the throne room worshiping him and his holiness the very holiness of God that causes wrath to be poured out on unbelievers unrepentant, is the very holiness of God that those of us who are in Christ, who took, our, who took God's wrath on our behalf, are now praising Him for. That very same holiness, the fact that He is separate, that He is above, that He is transcendent, is the same reason that these people are facing death and destruction. You see, these are the only two options. Either the wrath of God that was poured out upon Christ, it's the wrath that we deserve. And if we put our faith in Him, we are forgiven of that. We are saved from God's wrath. Or we will face God's wrath poured out at the end of time. Those are the only two options. God is purifying for Himself a people. God is creating a new heaven and a new earth in the age to come. And that earth is going to be made holy. His people are going to be made holy, as 1 Peter says, for we are a holy people, a royal priesthood. The fact of the matter is that God is going to cleanse the earth the same way the Levitical priests had to cleanse themselves in order to enter the presence of the most holy place. And the question is, how is that cleansing going to come to you? Is it going to come by you by being destroyed in the fires of hell, eternal damnation? The wrath of God? Or is it going to be imparted to you by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? His blood, who cleanses every stain, washes away every iniquity. Those are the only two options. Either faith in Christ, or God's wrath to be faced by you. The wrath of God is real, because God's holiness is real. This is why a fear of God should be ever-present in our lives because we recognize that He is holy. He is so much different from us. He is so far above us. He is transcendent. We should fear God because of His holiness, because of His otherness. Paul Washer, when speaking of God's holiness, makes, a, a, I think, a, a helpful analogy. He talks about being in a cornfield in the middle of the night. And you have two options. Either you come across in the middle of the night, in the middle of a cornfield, a a seven-foot-tall, ripped, buff, mean guy who wants to just rip you apart. wants to just destroy you, beat you to a pulp, and has the ability to probably do it. Or would you rather run into, in the middle of a field, in the middle of the night, an alien from another planet? This is kind of a silly analogy, but but I think it's helpful. The fact of the matter is, I would probably prefer to run into this seven foot tall, mean guy who wants to beat me to a pole. Why? Because I know what he is. I know what he is. He is a man and I know what men can do. I know what men are capable of, but the fact of the matter is, I have no idea what an alien from another planet is, nor what they are capable of. Their otherness, the fact that they are different from me, something unique. Other is why there's a a sense of fear in in the fact that they are so different from us. And the, the point I want to make here with this is that that is why we should fear God. We fear God not because God is just so much greater of a thing than we are, but of the same kind. God is not just a more powerful man, a more loving man, a more righteous man than we are. God is entirely different from we From what we are. He is entirely different. He is holy. He is unique. He is set apart. This is why we fear God. Because he is so different. So unique from us. The difference between man and God is not one of quantity. But rather one of quality. He is not merely a greater version of us. He is entirely a different kind than us. Unique. Transcendent. This is why in in other religions that that worship men, so-called prophets, as as somehow they are worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be revered. But the fact of the matter is they are nothing. They are men. They are like us. They do not deserve our worship. The reason God is worthy of worship, worthy of praise, as the people of God sang in the throne room, is because he is holy. Because he is unlike us. He is different from us. He is separate. He is a holy, holy, holy God. And therefore deserving of our worship. Even in his wrath. God is worthy of worship in his wrath. There are only two options for those who live on this earth. We either put our faith in Jesus Christ. Who bears God's wrath on our behalf. For we drink the cup of God's wrath ourselves and find ourselves in the same position as those in chapter 16 who are shaking their fist at God as he crushes them under his might. And that's exactly what they did. In chapter 16, verse 9, verse 11, verse 21, each of them concludes, and they did not repent. They did not repent. And verse 6 tells us exactly what they got. They got what they deserved their lack of repentance. You see, there is this misunderstanding that, that people think that God is, is mean and unforgiving because he will send people to hell for one particular sin or another. That, that if someone uh, does this sin, God is going to send them to hell because they are uniquely doing that sin or, or because someone does this. I mean, this is true even in, in the evangelical world with certain sins that are just so taboo. Like, oh, that person's going to hell probably because they're gay. That person is going to hell because uh, they're a drunkard. That person is going to hell because of this or that. But the true reason that any person goes to hell, faces the wrath of God, is because of the sin of unbelief. Unrepentance. That is what sends people to hell. Not one particular sin, but the fact that they are unrepentant. Refusal to submit to God and His holiness. So I would implore you today. If you have failed to understand that God is holy, separate from us, and that that is the reason his wrath is real and is a burning and consuming fire, then I would implore you today. There is a way to escape God's wrath. And his name is Jesus Christ. Through faith in him. This doesn't have to be our reality in chapter 16. It doesn't have to be. Not because we don't deserve God's wrath but because Jesus Christ has taken it on our behalf. The same it is finished that Jesus proclaimed on the cross declares for us salvation, as the it is done that declares damnation for those in chapter 16. Let's pray. Lord God, we have not even scratched the surface today of your holiness and why you deserve our our faithfulness, our worship why you deserve glory. But Lord, I pray today that we would not stop searching it out. But Lord, we would see the practical applications of your holiness and that it leads to worship. It causes us to repent. It causes us to fear, and rightly so. I pray today, Lord, that you would foster within each and every one of us in this place a fear of God. Lord, one that truly recognizes the fact that if we are not in Christ, we are Damned for all of eternity. Help us to realize that, Lord. Help us to see your glory even in your wrath. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.